Hey everyone, welcome or welcome back to the Brave Church Podcast, and thanks for listening. At the end of this talk, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook or Instagram, where you can get even more connected to what's going on in our community. But most importantly, we hope the following talk inspires you to take your next step in finding or following Jesus. How you guys doing? Welcome to Brave Church. Happy New Year. We are so glad that you're joining us for the beginning of a new talk series that I'm pumped about. At the end of last year, we started praying and just asking God, God, what would it look like for our entire church to grow together spiritually at the start of 2019? And we felt led to do a teaching series on the Bible. And so these first few weeks, we're going to be getting into a lot of detail on how we got the Bible and and what the Bible says or why the Bible's authoritative and a bunch of stuff like that. But before we do that, I just want to clear something up, because maybe you've heard this phrase, the word of God. And in the Bible, this phrase actually isn't referring to itself. It's not talking about the Bible. It's actually talking about Jesus or his proclaimed message. But that said, there's nothing wrong with referring to the Bible as the word of God. And that's the most common way it's referred to in our culture. And so that's what we mean by the word of God. We're doing a series on the Bible. And so the Bible is one of the primary ways that God has revealed himself to humanity. It's not the only way, but it's one of the primary ways. God also reveals himself through signs, wonders, miracles, prophecy, and in the person of Jesus Christ. And we actually have eyewitnesses and testimony accounts of people who witnessed the life of Jesus on earth while he was here. And but it's the written word of God that gives us something that we can all look at and go, that looks like God. That sounds like God. That fits within the nature and character of who I know God to be. Measuring against the word of God is how we know that we're not just hearing voices It's not just our own thoughts or the thoughts of our our wife or our husband or a friend or, or the opinion of someone. It's also how we know that it's not an evil thought or a thought that's trying to lead us in a direction that's not God's best for our lives. So write this down. This is in your notes. And if you didn't get notes, uh, go ahead, raise your hand. You guys are going to want these. But the word of God helps us identify the voice of God. The word of God helps us identify the voice of God. It's the written word of God that gives us clarity to discern his voice, his desires, his will. And so on a practical level, the word of God is the foundation for everything that we do as a church here at Brave. And so this is also in your notes. Some people build their lives on strong opinions, but a firm foundation is built on strong convictions. Opinions can be based on feelings, they can be based on preferences, they can be all over the map, but convictions are something deeper. A conviction is something that you feel a sense of rightness about, you feel a sense of justice about. When when you go against your convictions, you lose your peace, you start to feel deeply conflicted. And so as followers of Jesus, our convictions are supposed to be formed by the word of God and go deep within our souls. There's a passage in 2 Timothy that illustrates so well how useful the word of God is meant to be in our lives as followers of Jesus. In this passage, the apostle Paul is talking to a young leader in the church named Timothy. Check out this passage. It's 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. 
It says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's passages like this, when you look at it, it's not hard to see just how central the word of God is meant to be in the life of a follower of Jesus. I mean, when you look at what Paul wrote here, he says it's useful for teaching. He also says it's useful for rebuking when something's wrong. We look at the word of God to determine and discern what's right or wrong, not based on feelings, not based on preference, but going, hey, is this in alignment with what a follower of Jesus' life is, is meant to look like or how we're supposed to do things? It's useful for correcting, and it's useful for training in righteousness. It shows us how to be in right relationship with God and one another. And then it says, so that the servant of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, to do good. And so here's the problem, and this is what we're going to look at today, is I can make a case all day long for how useful the Bible says it is. But if you don't trust the book itself, it's not very useful. And so that's going to be the starting point of our journey in this series. See, maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus. And I love that you're here. We love that you're here. We, we envision this community as a place where everyone can be welcome, regardless of where they're at on their faith journey. But what you need to know and what I hope that you'll learn through our time together in this series is that this is not an illogical belief system. This is not a corrupted belief system. It's not just a tradition It's actually a reasonable thing to believe based on facts and knowledge. Our faith will always require faith. That's why it's a faith, right? It'll always require trust. But there is so much that you might not have heard about this book. And so I'm really excited. Are you guys pumped? Okay. so hey, in every generation, there are voices that rise up and challenge the validity of the word of God. And a lot of this comes in response to reading it and disagreeing or becoming offended. And let's be real, most of the Bay Area doesn't think that it's a good idea to base your life on an ancient book that some call holy. So it might not be popular, but as a follower of Jesus, the contents of this book are essential for living the life that God intends. It's the best way to be human. It's the way that our creator designed us to live. He gave us this book for a really important reason. And so the starting point of this journey, we're going to consider how we got it. Because if you can't trust how we got it, you can't trust what's in it. This is a really uh, important thing for a follower of Jesus. Because if you disregard the word of God or if you take it lightly, look at what Jesus himself said in John. He said, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So the teachings of Jesus are found in the word of God. And according to Jesus, holding to them is one of the ways that you are marked, that your life is marked, and that you are identified as a follower of him by holding to these teachings. And it says that the truth will set you free. In an age where it's really hard to trust, and it's hard to take a stance that's not popular, and it's not popular to live by the word of God, in this age, how do we maintain faith? So before we jump into this, I want to say a prayer for you before we get into some of the, the, the stuff we're going to look at today. So if you'd bow your heads, I want to pray that your faith would be strengthened today and throughout this series. God, I pray for every single person in this room. 
They are here for a reason. You have brought them here. And God, I pray that you would speak to them. I pray that our hearts would be open, that our minds would be open, and that we would begin this journey from whatever our starting point was, that as we begin this new journey together in a new year, that we would form stronger convictions around the things that matter to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So hey, to make it easier to follow along today, we're going to frame this up as a conversation with a neighbor. And so my neighbor's name is Jordan, and he's actually a follower of Jesus, but we're going to pretend he's not today. Uh, for the sake of this conversation. I told him this yesterday because I was thinking, man, imagine how awkward this would be if he listened to the podcast. <laughs> so Jordan is a, a really great guy. He's, he happens to be a follower of Jesus, but we're going to say he's not. So imagine with me, you're talking to your neighbor, and we're like, hey, Jordan, how's it going? He's like, it's going good, and you're, you're wearing a Brave hat. And he says, hey, where'd you get that really cool hat? And you're like, Jordan, you haven't heard of Brave? Like, where have you been? Do you drive on 680? Like, what's, what's the deal? Where have you been? And so he's like, no, I've never heard of it. What is it? And you say, well, Brave's my church. I go, there, I go there every week. And he says, oh, I didn't peg you as someone who goes to church. And you're like, well, why? What do you mean by that? And he's like, well, don't you know the Bible is just like full of errors? It's corrupt. It's inaccurate. Like, I just didn't peg you. You seem like a smart guy. I didn't peg you as someone that would just base your life on an ancient book. And so, you know, you're a little hurt, but, you know, in the moment, you're just like, well, well Jordan, why would you say that? Like, what do you, what do you mean? And, and so what do you say to Jordan? Um, so you're talking to Jordan, and Jordan, you know, you say, you know, I've heard that too, but I also think we both agree that there's no book in all of history that's quite like the Bible. In fact, it's in a league all its own, and, and that probably makes you wonder a little bit, doesn't it? And Jordan says, well, you know, you're right, but that doesn't make it the word of God. And so you say, yeah, that's true. But don't you think that how unique and special it is would be one of the first notable features if it actually was from God? And he says, "Okay, you know, you've got a point there, but I'm not really sure about this. And, you know, personally, I own hundreds of books, and this is the only one that claims to be the word of God. So it's standing out. It's unique. But I want to share with you some quick facts about the Bible. So Jordan, check this out. Circulation. It's the single most published book in the history of the world. Billions have been printed and millions continue to be sold every year. Try to name one book that's been the bestseller every single year since it came out. Like it is it's so prolific. I mean, they don't even list it anymore. It would just be like Bible, Bible, Bible at the top of every list. It's crazy. Translation. It's the single most translated book in all the world. As of October 2017, the Bible's been translated into 670 languages and the New Testament into over 1,521 languages. And some portion of the Bible has been translated in over 3,300 languages. Durability, it survived bans, burnings by kings and rulers, ridicule, criticism. Yet the Bible has outlived every single one of its most cruel opponents. Think about this. Ordinary books aren't attacked throughout world history. Voltaire, a famous French Enlightenment writer, he was a philosopher, he was a historian, really sharp guy. And in the 1700s, he made this statement. He said, in the next 100 years the Bible will become extinct. Well, on the 50th anniversary of his death, 
they, the Geneva Bible Society printed a Bible, started printing Bibles in his own home using his printing press. Isn't that crazy? Consider the impact. Over centuries, millions upon millions of people have credited the Bible for transforming their lives, altering their view of the world, changing their relationships, their values, and their view of eternity. Millions upon millions of people can testify to how the Bible has actually changed their lives. So what other book has accomplished this? Or what about its composition? This is really important. There's five things to this, the composition of the Bible, five points that I want to make. The first is that it was written over a 1,500-year span by 40 generations. Number two, it was written by over 40 authors from every walk of life, including kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, and scholars. Number three, it was written in a a wide variety of different places and different circumstances. Moses wrote from the wilderness. Jeremiah wrote from a dungeon. Paul wrote from prison. And John wrote from the island of Patmos. It was written in every conceivable location. Did you know, number four, it was written on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. And number five, it was written in three languages. Hebrew, the language of the Old Testament. Aramaic, the common language of the Near Eastern world until the time of Alexander the Great. And then Greek, the New Testament language, the international language of the time of Christ. So before we look at some of the most popular claims against the validity of the Bible, I want to give you a summary and an overview of what was just said, okay? The Bible was written over a 1,500-year time span by 40 different generations coming from radically different backgrounds and cultures. It was written from different places, at different times, in different languages, by different writers on different continents, yet it contains an unmistakable thread of continuity throughout its pages. So maybe you've heard the argument, we're going to start with this one, that says, aren't the copies of the Bible hopelessly corrupt? And so let's talk about that. Some scholars estimate that there are 400,000 variants among the text, among all the New Testament manuscripts that we have. And if this is true, if we really have no confidence in how the Bible was copied over time, then it's really pointless to get into debates about its accuracy. So we need to establish this first. Um, There's a longing in our hearts for truth. We want to know the truth. And so when we hear claims like there are over 400,000 variants or errors or whatever that means, right? We're like, whoa, what's the deal? Like, where did these come from? Um, Do these variations uh, have minor or major implications? Do they affect the meaning? And so how how did these variants even become discovered? How did they come into existence? Well, the number 400,000 comes from a book by Bart Ehrman. And this book is titled Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why. And he once said, the author once said that he was a Christian, but he now describes himself as an agnostic. And he's one of the biggest enemies of the Bible that's that's popular today, okay? So here's the deal. The title of his book is very misleading. It's kind of like a BuzzFeed article. Um, It's not anyone misquoting anything. Nobody's misquoting Jesus. It's about the nature of the similarities and differences among the New Testament manuscripts. Okay, so it's a little bit clickbaity, meaning that the scribes, it's talking about things that they accidentally or intentionally changed 
little elements of the text as they were copying it. So nobody's being misquoted. How many of you, quick show of hands, if you've made a grammatical error on a text message? How many of you have made one in the last month? How many of you make one every time you text? That's me, with or without Siri. So a talk title, like grammatical errors of the New Testament, wouldn't have sold very many books. But this book was a New York Times bestseller. And the truth is, most all of its contents disclose nothing that biblical scholars from all different theological backgrounds haven't known for decades. And so let's get back to our conversation with Jordan. Okay, Jordan, I know, um, I don't know if you realize this, but all of the English translations of the Bible, except for the King James Version and the New King James Version, have footnotes or marginal notes that already mention the most important variations that have been discovered. Now, if you're reading a Bible that's in electronic form, then you're missing out on these. But for years and years, people have seen these. And what Ehrman doesn't make clear is that the number and the nature of manuscripts that we have that have been uncovered make it very unlikely that we'll find any new ones. Like, we, we, we've been studying these. We've been cross-referencing these. So there's no big discovery. What you really want to know is that the vast majority of textual variants are not very interesting. If the number 400,000 is even accurate, it's spread across 25,000 manuscripts. And a large percentage of them cluster around the same verses, in the same passages, and only about one-tenth of one percent were even interesting enough to become footnotes in our Bibles. In other words, um, where there are variants, no one's been hiding them. Uh, But Jordan asked if the copies are corrupt, Okay, So there's other ways that they might have been corrupted. Let's take a look. Um, Er Ehrman himself wrote in his book, he said, essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. So he's explored all these different ways that it might have been corrupted. But then at the, the very back of his book, and it's very unfortunate because he says this at the very end, guess how far back he puts this statement? The appendix. Who's ever read an appendix? So he makes this claim that, hey, the essential beliefs, nothing's actually affected by these minor variants that that he's discovered in the text. And so, Jordan, this question really does come up a lot, that our copies of the Bible are corrupt. But Jordan, when people ask if they're corrupt or if they're inaccurate, they're assuming that Maybe we only have like one or two copies to compare to, and, and they conflict, or there's, there's problems with them. But, but if we only had one or two, I mean, that might be true. But Jordan, we have over 24,000 manuscripts to cross-reference. This means that, that we can identify the differences and comparisons, and over 24,000 manuscripts can be checked, and nothing conflicts to the point of changing any basic beliefs or the essence of the Christian faith at all. And so you might not be too impressed by that without context, but check this out. Looking at a few other ancient writings, uh, we only have 49 copies for Aristotle, seven for Plato, 643 for the works of Homer. And no one at universities is ever challenging their integrity. Nobody's saying that they're corrupt. Nobody's saying um, that they're inaccurate. You could burn all 24,000 New Testament manuscripts that we have and still reconstruct an entire New Testament. How could we do that? Well, 200 years after the death of Jesus, in that period of 200 years, the early church wrote a lot of letters to one another 
quoting from the original writings. And so the British Museum gathered 89,000 quotations, ancient documents, letters written amongst early church fathers and different people that were writing one another and quoting. And they took these quotations, and they were able to reconstruct an entire New Testament, all but 11 verses. Isn't that amazing? So if you're going to throw out the Bible as hopelessly inaccurate, you have to throw out all the ancient, ancient documents that we possess, all the ancient writings. And it's also noteworthy to consider the time gaps between when the original writings were copied. Okay? Aristotle wrote between 384 and 322 BC. And the earliest copy we have of his writings is 1100 AD. So there's a 1,400-year gap from when he originally wrote and when it was copied. When Aristotle wrote uh, and someone copied what he said, um, there, there was 1,400 years. And then in Plato, when he wrote 427 to 347 BC, the earliest copy is said to be 900 AD. So there's a 1,200-year gap. So Jordan, the question we're really trying to get to is what is the gap between when Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, and the other New Testament writers wrote and when it was copied? So the entire New Testament was written within a 25-year period. That in and of itself is amazing, because that means that everything that was written was written while they were all still alive, and nobody refuted anyone else's writings or claims. Nobody had a problem with anything that was written. Everyone was in unity and agreement, which you would think would, be, would mean that it was inspired by God, right? And so there's no record, no documentation of anyone um, having a problem with what any of the other authors wrote. And furthermore, we had actual copies of the original New Testament in libraries when they were first copied. So no other document of the ancient period is as accurately preserved as the New Testament. In addition, none of the established New Testament canon has been lost. None of the verses are missing. A.N. Sherwin-White, the distinguished historian of Rome, says this of Luke's gospel. He says, for the book of Acts, the confirmation of historicity is overwhelming. Any attempt to reject its basic historicity, even in matters of detail, must now appear absurd. So another criticism is that people say that the gospels themselves are filled with contradictions. And so say Jordan asks you about that. Say he says, hey, you know, which, uh, you know, I heard that the Gospels conflict with one another, that there's contradictions. And so you say, well, you know, what, what verse are you talking about? And interestingly enough, most people don't really have a verse. It's just something that they heard. And so I went to a case study for us. I put together a case study for us. We're going to take a look at an alleged Gospel contradiction. What was written on the cross above Jesus's head? Every gospel actually says something different. So in Matthew, it says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. In Mark, it says, the king of the Jews. In Luke, it says, this is the king of the Jews. And in John, it says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So if the sign over uh, Jesus's head actually read in full, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, then these gospel accounts are all correct. They're simply incomplete in different ways. 
Because you'll notice that each one records the same statement. They all have the same primary statement that the king, the king of the Jews. And then in the Gospel of John, it adds another um, interesting fact that the sign above Jesus's head was written in three different languages. So it's possible that three of the authors were simply writing it down from a different language. And all of these put together, what they do is they actually give us a more clear picture of what was being said. And so say you're talking to Jordan, and he, he's asking you um, if, uh, how many variants you could, you could number in just the New Testament alone, or how many differences are conflicting. And he, you know, he's still got more questions. And so what do you do with all of this? If I say to my friend Jordan, uh, Jordan, if we walk outside of the auditorium, um, and he's, he's standing out there, and I say, hey, there's a chair in there if you need one. That's true, right? And then if one of you walk out and say, hey, Jordan, there's 10 chairs in there if you need one. And then if, if somebody else walks out and says, hey, Jordan, there's like 300 chairs in there if you need one. They're all true. They're all accurate. It's a testimony because it's a different perspective. It's, it's a truth from that individual's perspective. And so the authors of the New Testament were human. And so they're sharing different facts from different points of view based on what's standing out to them. Um, another example, if... Um, uh, a detective had three stories. Could be a detective, um, could be a, a mom of some teenagers. And they're asking them, hey, what really happened? What, what's going on? And all three of these teenagers have three different stories. Okay, if they, if they all had the same story, then it would mean they're collaborating. But if each one was a little bit different, it would seem more believable. It would seem more real. And when you put these stories together, you probably get a more full picture of what happened. Or my wife and I, we just went to Carmel to do a maternity shoot. We went to the, there's a beautiful beach there with white sand. But some people call this part of Carmel, Carmel by the sea. Other people refer to it as Monterey or the Monterey Peninsula. But which one is true? They're all true. But from a different perspective, we all communicate a little bit differently. Um, there's some other resources that you can check out. This is at the bottom of your notes. But I wanted to list these for further study, because some of you are going to want to go further this week. There's a book called Can We Trust the Bible by Craig Blumberg. And then Dan Wallace has a website where you can see photos of the manuscripts, and you can learn a lot more about this whole area. Also, Dan's debates with Bart Ehrman are, are very helpful. If you just YouTube it, you can see the guy who wrote that book earlier, and then this guy, they debate on YouTube. And it's a great resource. Um, but I know that this is a lot to process. It's a lot to take in. There's a lot of a lot of facts, a lot to consider, and it, it might make your head hurt. It made mine hurt all week long. Um, but one of the ways that we actually worship God and love Him is with our minds. It's seeking to understand. It's bringing our questions, and knowing why you believe what you believe is a believable thing to believe is a part of everyone's faith journey. Uh, most of the time when someone brings up a concern or a question from a verse, they really uh, are just repeating something that they've heard or something that they have trouble with or that, that creates some tension in their life related to the Bible. But I would encourage you, encourage you, if you're in a conversation with someone and you're not really sure how to answer it and, and they do have a specific verse and, and you don't have the answer, just say, hey, let me do some research on that. This is, this is a great question. Let me talk to someone that might know. Um, or, or, or let's look at this together. But to have legitimate questions about the Bible and how we got it is such a good thing because it means that we care. And it's an act of worship. 
And so with our teachings here and throughout this series and really every Sunday, um, I hope that you trust me, but don't believe something just because I tell you to. Question everything. Because listen, eventually we all need to come to some conclusions and those conclusions need to become convictions that we're basing our lives by, that we're building our lives on. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so if the Bible is the word of God, then following its teachings and living by them are the signs that you were really one of Jesus's disciples. And at the end of the day, what you bet your eternity on, what you place your trust in, will always require trust and it will always be a step of faith. And so today, um, we looked at some of the most critical arguments about how we got the Bible and the validity of it. Next week, we're going to talk about why it's such a big deal. We're going to hit on the authority of Scripture. Maybe you've heard this phrase. You know, it's this idea that I should take my cues of how I live my life from an ancient book that some call holy. Um, I believe that we should. Uh, but, But many haven't settled that. And maybe you have a faith and you've been following Jesus but your questions about the Bible and its validity or, or questions about whether or not you can trust it have kept you from really stepping into all that God wants for your life. So I want to end with a question today for us to ask just as we move into this time of response and worship. But I want, I want to end with this question for us to ask ourselves, and that is, is there something in my life or in my heart that would keep me from accepting the word of God? Some of us here today need to ask ourselves, what am I really building my life on? Am I building my life on Jesus? Is my my greatest trust in him? Am I building my life on an unshakable foundation? Or maybe you know what it's like to feel stuck. Maybe you've been following Jesus. You, You raised your hand or you came forward or you prayed with someone, you became a Christian, but you're like, why do I still feel stuck? Like I'm not getting everything out of this faith that God wants for me. And maybe it's because you haven't really gone back and decided I'm going to live life God's way. And I'm going to make that my pursuit. And then I'm going to let his word be the highest authority in my life. I remember the moment that my faith became the most real. It was a significant moment because I grew up in a Christian home. And so I grew up and I learned about Jesus. My parents introduced me to Jesus at a young age. And so in my mind, I knew who God was and I knew about God, but it wasn't until I was in sixth grade that I remember going to a worship thing in the youth group that I was a part of. And we were outside and I remember having this moment where I was just looking up at the stars and I was worshiping and I asked God, I said, God, if you're real, I want to feel that you're real. What does that feel like? God, make yourself known to me. And in that moment, I felt the presence of God and I just started to cry. And the thing is, all of us, when, we, when we're thinking about our faith and when we're thinking about God, it starts up here, but it's often when God touches our heart that it becomes the most unshakable, that it becomes the strongest foundation. And so maybe for some of you, maybe you've even logically decided, yeah, this makes sense, I'm in. But maybe you haven't yet experienced the presence of God. And so this, this time, as we go into this song, this could be a moment for you today. I think God wants some of you in this room to become aware of his reality by feeling his presence. And it's the most comforting feeling. It's the, one of the most amazing things, the most amazing thing that I've ever felt because you just feel filled with his love. 
And so as we go into this, I just want you to be open. God wants to meet you where you're at, wherever that is. Some of you, maybe you'll become uh, awake to the reality of him for the first time. Others, maybe this will be a new dimension of who God is, what could be. Maybe for others, it's a moment where you're just asking that question and you recognize some things in your heart or some things in your mind, some lies maybe that have been keeping you from taking that next step towards what God wants for you. So if you're comfortable, feel free to stand as we go into this song or you can sit wherever you're at. But this is a moment between us and God. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Bay Area, we would love for you to join us at a Sunday gathering in San Ramon. For directions, gathering times, or information about our Brave Kids program, visit us at brave.church. Also, if you want to help support what God is doing through Brave, you can give online to the Brave Foundation at brave.church forward slash foundation.